Welcome to New Hope Fellowship Online. I am Elder Tony Acampa, and I'm excited that you are tuning into this message. I pray that it helps you grow in your walk with Christ and encourages you to dive deeper into God's Word. For more information on who we are as a church, I'd like to encourage you to visit nhfchurch.org. If you are interested in partnering with us financially so we can continue to share the gospel message with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, thank you for being here and for listening. I hope you enjoy this message. Some of you know who she is. And Hello. She is one of our worship leaders, but she's also been on staff. So we want to talk through a little bit of kind of where she's been and kind of um, how long she's been on staff because you've been here for a number of years. So how long have you been on staff, Carly, and what has your role covered in that time span? Yeah, so um, staff-wise, I think I've been on staff for around seven years-ish. Um taking on the artsy-fartsy stuff of New Hope for about 10, you know, when it comes to volunteer stuff. But I've gone to New Hope my entire life, so um, basically probably starting at age three, I was stuffing the back of the chair Um So, but yeah, all of, the, all of the artsy stuff really that you see around has pretty much either come across my desk or been something that I've made or created, whether it be in like on the screens, signage, website, mailing things, you know, all of all of that kind of all stuff. The so, yeah. been coming. All the pretty stuff, really. Okay. Yeah. It's not me, I promise. Yeah. Six figures? Yeah. So favorite thing over that seven years and longer really, what's been your favorite thing about being on staff? Um, favorite thing, there's two things I would say. So first off, being on staff with my mom was super fun. So for those of you that don't know, Lauren Pickett, who was the worship leader this morning, who's also the programming director, um, is my mama. So we have a really great relationship and a really fun friendship. So being able to be on staff with my mom was a huge treat. Um, but then also being able to use, um, creativity for something other than self-expression, um, was really cool for me. You know, obviously, I think that, like, if, if you find yourself as an artsy person, you know, using art as self-expression is a good thing, but having having a reason beyond the reason was really good for me. So, um, you know, being able to create things that would, you know, hopefully enhance the worship experience, or even on the practical side with, like, doing the website and such, like, there's statistics where if you can't find what you're looking for on a website within like four seconds, you're going to go somewhere else. So keeping that in mind for like newcomers, um, being able to use the skill set that I have as a testimony to be able to be like, here's everything that you might be looking for. You know, let me help answer your questions or put them in front of you in a way that is aesthetically pleasing and and hopefully draws you in to, to come and learn more about Jesus. So Very cool. So over the past six months, really, what have you been up to? Well, I birthed a baby. So that's probably the, the biggest one. Um, yeah, so I've gotten um, really good at making coffee, um, burning the midnight oil. Um, 
so at home, we have my husband and I, Jesse, who's also one of the worship leaders. Um, we have a toddler at home now as well as an infant. So I haven't been busy. Um, it's just been a lot of, you know, teaching people how to regulate their emotions, um, <laughs> my own included. Um, you know, and lots of crafts, books, library trips, fun things like that. Fun things. But it's been, it's been really good. Oh, very good. So, how are you continuing to uh, partner with us? Kind of as New Hope, you've kind of officially transitioned off, but how have you continued to partner with us at New Hope? Yeah, taking my own picture off of the website was kind of hard. <laughs> I will say that. I was the person who was like doing that for so many years. I was like, oh, I'm deleting it. Um, but yeah, so partnering alongside, um, I'm definitely still continuing to do. So I do still worship lead, though that's, um, I haven't come back doing that yet since that's a baby. But um, yeah, I um, come in and help uh, some staff if they have any questions with the programs that I was really familiar with running that they are, you know, now doing or learning. And then um, whether there's like a kind of a big holiday or a big um campaign or a project or anything like that that's upcoming, um, you know, I'll help create some visuals or, you know, different things for that. So that's fun for me to still be able to dip my toe in every now and again. Yes. That, yeah. And we like that because, again, my creativity is limited. I can affirm this. <laughs> yeah. They don't let me paint anymore for a reason. Yeah, creative meetings were, were interesting. <laughs> between the two I have the ideas. Yeah. She makes them come to life sure. for us. Yeah. So, yeah, so we very much enjoy and appreciate the partnering Thank and you. the contract with you in that. Thank you. So what are you excited about in this season that God kind of has you in, a new child at home, regulating all those emotions? Yeah. Um, what are you excited about in this season? Um, you know, it, it was... So I'm I'm excited to be a stay-at-home mom. You know that is a that is a huge gift um, from the Lord, but then also very practically from my husband. You know that's something that he affirmed that he prayed over, and he was like, "No, I really feel like this is a step of faith that we're supposed to take, and that this is what you're supposed to do." So um, being able to be with the littles from when they wake up to when they go to sleep is really an amazing experience. Is it exhausting? Yes. <laughs> but it is, um, it's a beautiful thing. So, um, you know, I learned that nervousness and excitement are the same uh, process in your brain. It's just how you interpret them. So, like, at first, I think there was a sense of nervousness where it's like, okay, we're like, um, we have one income now versus two, and we have a lot of different changes and whatever. But I've just learned that, just like the song that we sang, he's not going to let us down. So, and things that we thought were going to be tight have not been as tight. So it's it's just been really cool to watch him show up. So I'm excited to see just what his plan is for us over the next six months. Because I don't know what it is. Nice, nice. One day at a time, right? Yeah, one day at a time. Yes, and my wife from the test reminds me that yes, we stay at home. There is lots of energy expended. I mean, that was very true. Yeah. It's amazing. You don't know how little sleep you can function on until you have a toddler and a newborn and you can't nap. <laughs> so. I, I do take naps, but I, I nap with the kids. My, my toddler doesn't gracious. nap anymore, so. So how can New Hope, and this team you find yourself in, you're yep. still partnering with us, but as you move into this, how can we as a church be praying for you? Yeah, just, um, I think the biggest thing that's on my heart right now is that I just, um, I want to make the best use of my time at home. You know, like they they say.
say the cliche is so real, where the days are so long but the years are so short. And so I want to make sure that I, with being home, am able to, you know, really pour into my babies the way that I, to the most, the most that I can, um, leading them to Jesus. And then, you know, obviously that Jesse can, you know, do the same when he gets home as well. But yeah, I think the biggest thing, though, is just really that, that they would just fall in love with Jesus and that me being home with them is hopefully an asset in their journey to come to know the Lord. Yeah. Well, let me pray for you this morning. We'll give a little gift card for you. We'll give that. But let me pray for you this morning. We'll be praying to the church again for Carly. She's transitioned officially off that. She's not leaving anywhere. I would not function well with creativity. I promise you that. You would not like my doodles and my creativity side. But be able to partner with her not going anywhere. She's right here with us, but we as a church get to rally in this season, and we're all about health. How do you create a healthy church culture, a healthy home life? Well, sometimes you take a step of faith as Jesse and Carly did. Is the money? Is going to be? But seeing God provide and seeing God continuously be at work, and that's what we want to do, and that's what we came to faith in the flames. Let me pray for you, Carly, this morning. Lord God, we thank you for Carly and for Jesse, for their service, Lord, over the many years. Both on staff and Lord, as they transition to this new season of life that you call each of us at different times to. New seasons, new beginnings, but still in the same vicinity and same areas. Looks a little different, and some things still look the same. So we ask for wisdom and countenance on both Jesse and Carly. Lord, as they raise their two young ones, as Carly transitions to stay at home, what does that look like and engage with both of her girls? Would you give her wisdom and clarity to know what that looks like? An extra measure of patience as she continues to regulate those emotions with those little girls and to continue to help and guide them and nurture them. Pray that Jesse would be a rock for her to lean on, that he'd have the words to encourage both his, all of his girls. Lord, would you give an extra measure of grace as he deals with all girls in the house, but to be able to lead them well and to be leading that they can run to him. And ask for your grace and care in this season, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Carly. Appreciate it. So yes, Carly's not leaving anywhere. We still partner with her multiple times, and we have other projects that are already in the works with her. So you will be still seeing her in variety forms, as with Jesse. Uh, it's transitions, and transitions and timing are hard. We find ourselves that way in Esther too, which is a unique situation where Esther finds herself in. In fact, if I had to ask the question, have you ever been in a situation kind of where you have the choice between two decisions, but you're trying to determine which decision is the least awful, right? We've all been there. There's two decisions in front of us, and both are not fun, and both don't look exciting. Which one do I choose, and I don't like either one? I don't want either one. But you find yourself there. And sometimes those decisions are because of past decisions, decisions in your past that have led you to this moment, and other ones, it's not anything you did or anything you've done, but it's in fact generations ago have caused you to find yourself where you find yourself in the moment, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's what Esther 2 kind of pulls us into. One commentator writes this about this specific chapter. Esther 2 is a story the like of which when we hear it on the news, we can scarcely bear to contemplate it. There is no escapism here. Esther 2 is the real world. And for some, the fact alone may prove to be extremely important. Because it tells us that God's Word speaks to the extremes of our experiences, even when our society doesn't know what to say. The Lord is not confounded when the unthinkable happens. He is not silent when tragedy and sorrow and sin break in upon us and leave us broken. 
The prison of silence that can hold victims enslaved to shame and confusion is unlocked by passages like this one. The dark things we are unable to share with others are named here and faced here by the God of wisdom and love. He has a word for the abused and the abuser. He has something to say to the naive and the cynical. His gospel is a real-world gospel that works in the darkest realities of our lives. Esther 2, as bleak as it is, offers us unspeakable hope. And it's the situation that we find Esther in. We don't know who Esther is yet if you've been following along. We went through Esther 1 last week and looked at the history. At the King Xerxes, as he comes to the throne, he throws a massive party, a banquet for six months. Really, for all his military leaders, his governors, to show he is the unstoppable force. He is the king of kings in the world. And he's preparing to go militarily to fight the Greeks who his dad lost to. And chapter 1 ends with Vashti, him requiring his queen to come before a bunch of drunken men to showcase her beauty, his trophy wife. She stands firm and says, thank you, and refuses to come. And it puts him in a bind or predicament, and he gets frustrated, he gets angry, and he says, what do I do with this? And it shows, really, this character flaws of the king, that his queen says no, because it's not a good thing for her to go to. And what does he do? He banishes her. And instead of making a little thing in his his servants to say, hey, we're just going to keep this quiet and deal with Vashti quietly. We're going to announce to the whole kingdom what she did to you to embarrass them even more. Because in the season that Esther and the Jews find themselves in, and the book of Esther, is they were in captivity. Some have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, but it's a backwater, no nothing town. And Esther and some of the refugees who were transported here are still living in captivity. And they're caught between these two worlds. Chapter 1 ends with Vashti banished, and that's it. And it's, what does this have to play with Esther? And Esther 2 comes in, and we start to see there's this concept of going with the flow. So after these things, after chapter 1 ends, when the anger of the king Asherah had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he remembered. He looked back and said, I kind of regret. He's got a bit of regrets. But in the midst of the regrets, he doesn't own it. He doesn't acknowledge his decisions and his choices in the midst, he just regrets it. But because he's the king, then the king's young men who attended him and said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. There's a beauty contest. Let's just, since the king misses his wife, let's get a new one for him. The backstory, the side rabbit trail of history is the campaign against the Greeks has gone very badly. If you watch the movie 300, the Battle of Thermopylae has taken place. The Persians were held up for weeks at that battle, humiliated. They go and they destroy Athens, that's great, but then they lose the greatest sea battle, the Battle of Salamis, which basically puts the Persians to play. They're never going to take over the Greeks at this point. And so Asterisk has come back, Xerxes, traversed back to Susa, pretty much his tail between his legs. He is the king, but he has no wife, he's lost militarily, he's depressed. So what do the young men, his servants, want to do? Let's get a beauty pageant and let's bring a young virgin to be sought out for the king. Josephus, a historian, said there were roughly 400 women who were chosen for the king's harem. This beauty pageant, there was 400 women chosen. Now, this kingdom stretches from modern-day Turkey, goes straight south into Egypt, all the way across through India. It's a massive kingdom. And so this edict goes out across the whole kingdom to say, bring the most beautiful virgins, those that are unmarried, unwed, to the king's palace. Now, his power is probably more focused in the central regions, and it's going to take time to get out to the outer regions. So more than likely, most of these women 
come from the very centralized of Susa, the capital. So the king appoints officers. He likes this idea of all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman, woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. What's the king doing? Well, he's really looking to avoid guilt. He's got guilt from Vashti. He's got guilt from losing. He's depressed. And so he's ignoring his guilt, or he's going to hide from his guilt, but he's trying for the quick fix. I've lost militarily. I've lost my queen. I need to change. I need to spin this in a way that looks good for me. And we've seen that sometimes. God gives grace, though, he says, to the humble. And sometimes we need to simply own our mistakes and our choices. You and I, we can't be responsible for how others respond, but we can't control how we respond. Life is 90% of how we respond to what happens to us. 10% is what happens. But the king decides he needs a change of pace, and so he's going to do it. Though they live in Susa, the pagan land, they belong to the people of God. You read verses 5 and 6, and it says this. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. To catch my breath, I am still healing. If you're still praying for me, please do. So give me 30 seconds and catch my breath. So yes, in the moments like this, it gets very weird for the speaker. It gets a little out of breath, and I do. And what I've been doing and working through, and I have some of you have talked with me about this, is I still I got sick in January. And I still haven't fully recovered yet. That real sick came up almost. Some of you were here when I almost passed out. And that's really embarrassing for a pastor, for the record, to almost pass out. But I didn't. Sat down, caught my breath. And whatever it is, it's moments like this where you get afflicted with things and it's how you respond. And sometimes in our own pride, we push through. Sometimes you just have to say, I just need a moment. Get my breath, which I am. And I am good, I promise you, and I'm recovering. I am only 35, but it's slowly, it's time. So let's continue on with that, as you know, my own size, and I will admit that many times. But in this setting, what we see in Susa, as the concubines, as these women are gathered, it's, it's shifted. It goes in verse 5, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. So you're gathering all these women for the king. He misses his queen. So they decide you've lost on the military campaign. You've lost your wife. Well, then let's just sweep it under the rug and let's make a spin. We've seen this in the news. We've seen it with celebrities. They do something dumb. They make a poor choice. They get this bad publicity. And what do they do? Well, they start to try to change the narrative. They try to ramp up in a different direction. You're seeing this right now in our own sense with the whole Budweiser issue. They're trying to shift narrative. At some point, they will try. But people are upset. People are angry. People are frustrated. It's the same way in the capital. The king looks like a fool right now. He's banished his queen. He's lost on the military front. So this strong man who has all of everyone under his control, this massive kingdom, he's lost on the military front and he's lost on the wedding front. And he needs a change. They need to switch it. So the author writes there was a Jew. Remember those Jews that were in captivity from Babylon that were taken here? 
and the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, and Benjamin. If you hold there, right over on the column, if you're in the Bible, write 1 Samuel 15. There's something that's very important about this concept of this background. And if we paused here and we jumped to 1 Samuel 15, you read this. And Samuel is one of the Old Testament prophets. He was really the last judge. comes after the period of judges. Samuel's here. He anointed this guy by the name of Saul King. In fact, in chapter 10, if you were to go back just a couple of chapters, you read about that in chapter 10 in the first three verses. It says this. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Had not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be to you a sign that you, the Lord, the Lord has appointed you to be prince. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men at Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, at Zelah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care. Then you shall go on from your father and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to the God of Bethel will meet you there, one carrying. And he's basically affirming, I've anointed you. You're going to see these things. And as he goes down, you find out who is Saul. Verse 20 of chapter 10, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. The tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near its clans. And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, right there, if you highlight circle that, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. He's hiding his first king. He doesn't want the responsibility then they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted, Long live the king. He's a Benjamite, from the son of Kish. You read Esther, chapter 2, where we just were, and it says, There was a Jew in Susa named Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Jews' lineage, coming back to the first king, plays a very big part in the very next couple of chapters. In chapter 15, if you read the title, it says, The Lord Rejects Saul. 15, chapter 1, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus does the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way out of Egypt. There was an issue. You read Genesis. You read about Father Abraham, you read about his descendants, they go into Egypt. In Exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt. As he brings them out of Egypt into the promised land, there's a certain king that didn't help them, that was actually against them. In opposing them on the way there, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Don't spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Pilium, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men in Judah. So he goes. God says, this man was evil to your people, generations ago. You're going to go and take them out. They're set aside for God's destruction. And Saul, verse 7, defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Wasn't supposed to do that. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned from me. And you read on a little further, and Samuel goes and confronts Saul. What 
did you do what God said? Oh, I did. Well, why do I hear the bleeding of goats? Why do I hear these? You know, oh, we, we just saved the best. We, we took out all the bad. And Samuel goes, no, no. God said destroy all of it. In verse 34, it says, Then Samuel went to Ramah, or three verse right, 32. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Rough. Took him out. Fast forward. You read Esther chapter 2. And you read about Mordecai. And he is this descendant of the great king Saul, the first king. Why is that important of Agag? When you read chapter 3 about Haman, there's his descendants. Go back to Agag. And we're going to read about him next week with Pastor Miller. But this whole point, this was written before. Past decisions could sometimes mean current consequences. And so the past decisions, Saul, he had an issue. He didn't follow God's plan. And if he didn't follow, where are the people today because of some of what he has done? And so it goes on further in the text. In the prophetic symbolism, myrtle would replace briars and thorns of desert. So the name uh, Hadessa, which we're going to next, it says this. He was bringing, excuse me a minute, catch my breath. In verse 7, Mordecai says he was bringing up Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. For she had neither father nor mother. The young women had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her own as his daughter. So there's an issue somewhere in here. Esther has lost her mom and dad. And in the midst of losing them, Mordecai has stepped in to raise her as his own. But her name in the Jewish form is Hadassah. And Hadassah means myrtle. Now, if you're plants, you know what myrtle is. But in prophetic symbolism from Isaiah 41 and 55 and Zechariah 1, Myrtle will replace the briars and thorns of the desert, so depicting the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance of his people. And so you're starting to see in Esther 2, in the midst of them living in captivity, that there's this Jew who lives differently. His, his ancestors have failed, and as a result of those decisions, finds himself where he is today. But then Esther comes on the scene, and her name is prophetic, looking the Lord's forgiveness and acceptance. They've been in captivity for 70 years. Some have gone back, and it's showing and displaying God is still at work. Though his name isn't mentioned, Hadassah means what it means. It's Myrtle, which means he's loving and accepting his people. Esther, that name means the star in Persian, living really in two worlds. That's where that comes from. Esther, Hadassah, they're two of the same names. Esther is the Persian name, meaning star is focused on the Persian culture. Hadassah is the Jewish culture. And so she's a woman living in two worlds. They live in Susa, but they belong to God. The current reality we find ourselves in, past decisions, as I mentioned before, some of them are our own. We're having to navigate it. And there's no easy answer. And sometimes it's from years past decisions that are coming back to affect us today. Are we defined by our past? No. Paul is clear. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation in Christ. And so there's past decisions that affect us in the present, and sometimes it has nothing to do with what we have done, but it's what our parents' generations have. We find ourselves, and that's where Esther finds herself. 
There's a edict. Go get these young virgins. Oh, there's this Jew, Mordecai. He's a descendant of King Saul. Hadassah, his daughter, who is his niece, really, is being raised by him. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, Esther also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So at this point, Esther is called up. She is put into the harem. She's in the capital, which means she wasn't just a beauty pageant as we would see at Miss America or anything like that. This is not a simple, you fill up an application, you put it in, and maybe you're chosen. This is, we're coming to your house, we're knocking, we're seeing, and we're taking you. Esther's not willing to go in here. Some of us can look at that and think that and say, oh, is there something more to No, Esther is taken. She is the victim in this situation. She's not willing to go in anywhere. She finds herself in the midst of a struggle. If she could deny and they could run, what would that do? This is the king of kings. He's got an army at his back. You're in the capital. You're not in some far distant province to ignore. She's stuck between a rock and a hard place. In verse 9, it says, And the young woman, meaning Esther, pleased him, Haggai, the, the main guy in charge, and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women. Esther has a brain. That's what that tells you right there in that verse. As she comes in as a victim, forced into this position, she has a choice of how she chooses to respond. And she could ignore and she could go kicking and screaming, but she's got a brain about her, and in some way her character is shown because she wins the favor of the chief eunuch. And she pleases him. So she's learning the art of humility, is how I would phrase it, of understanding, asking good questions, not demanding, but listening and finding. And she has something that's appealing beyond her just beauty. She listens, as I mentioned. She's got wisdom in some way. She's basically kidnapped, forced in this role. But in the midst of that, has found favor with the chief. And so he brings her, the seven young women, to work with her, her portion of the cosmetics, from the king's palace. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. There's more wisdom there. She still listens to Mordecai, her uncle, who sees things a little bit different than she does because he's got age and he's got wisdom of seasoned life. That's a bit different. And so because he's able to do that and see this, he's telling her that's probably not the best thing to say your lineage, where you're from. We're a conquered people. We're separate. And we do that sometimes in life, do we not? If we know we're a Christian and we find ourselves in certain roles and positions, we're quiet about our faith. Now, there's a point here. This is a real rabbit trail. The side rabbit trail is there's a time to do that. There's a time where you don't want to just blast open. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Let's go. You want to win friends and influence people, and so it's the art of navigating that. There was a time to stand up and be very bold. Vashti did that. She showed that. Esther's weighing that, do I, do I not? Mordecai's saying, be quiet, just put your head down. And so she's having to navigate a rock and a hard place. I am separate. I don't live like the world in Susa. And yet I find myself in a very bad predicament of having to walk through and forced into this situation, I have really no control over. And we find ourselves there as well sometimes. I went to be a history teacher. That was my goal, to be a history teacher and be a principal and work for the schools where you could influence and engage teens. I ended up in youth ministry and pastoral ministry and I still use the history to a degree. But in schools, it's very hard, if you're a Christian, to demonstrate your faith. 
but you're allowed to have your Bible on your desk. You can have it. You can bring it up as it relates to the lessons, and it's navigating when is it appropriate, when is the time. When is it better to listen? When is it better to engage? Because if you get into a debate, you've lost. Unless it's a debate setting. Once you get into a debate, ears are closed. James speaks to speak slow to speak, slow to get angry. God gives two ears to listen twice as much as we should speak. And so Esther is listening. Esther's got her ears to the ground and navigating the eunuch and what she's required to do for the world that she's in. And she's also listening to her uncle Mordecai saying, just be careful. Don't just share this. People don't have our best interest in mind. The other underlying reality is the Jews know that God's chosen people. Who is God's enemy? Satan. What has Satan been trying to do? Annihilate them. Those are God's people. Mordecai knows this. And yet God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And you find that in chapter 12, verse 12. It says, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to the king Asherah, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since she was the regular period of her beautifying, imagine this, six months with oil of myrrh and six months of spices and ointments for women. So 12 months of oils and spices, what's the deal with 12 months? Well, in case she was pregnant, that's part of it. 12 months would guarantee when you were brought into the capital, maybe you could have had sex. You could have been engaged. You could have, we don't know. So we're going to wait 12 months, and we're going to let you fatten up. That's the other part is, you got to remember, we, they don't live in the U.S. of A. There's not grocery stores. These are men and women who have very little to eat, who are string beans, more than likely. And the idea of beauty that we have, a very thin rail, all that, that's a newer concept. But back in that day, they pumped you up, ladies. That was the sign of beauty. So 12 months, guess what they did to you? They fed you the choicest food, choicest meat, and they plumped you up. And then they beautified you, and they put the makeup in the myrrh, because guess what else they didn't have in that time period? Deodorant. Soap. And if you did, you bathed maybe once or twice a year at most. So you don't smell the greatest coming in from the former, even in the capital of Susa. Not everybody was wealthy. Not everyone had access to that. They didn't have running water. You fill it out. So it's 12 months to beautify these women, to make them plump, to get them prepared for one night. One night. When a young woman went to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, here we go, ready? In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shegaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by him. So, ladies, what does this mean? What is, what is it describing and teaching us? Is that women were more of anything just a object to the king? You were kidnapped from your families, you were forced into subjugation, and they would fatten you up and you would spend one night with the king. And if you didn't please the king enough, well, then you never saw the king again. Now, 400 women, mind you, 400 women have gone before the king in this manner. And what would happen after that? Well, you would go to the harem, which is where all the concubines were, and you would live your life if you were never called again, pretty much as a widow. You were not allowed to get married. You were with the king, therefore you are the king's property. And you could spend the rest of your life eating well, having food and stuff, but a very lonely existence by yourself. 
never to be married, never to go back home, you were stuck there at the beck and call of the king, if he so desired. And that's what's happening. You can imagine, there's going to be one of the 400, roughly, that's a Josephus' guess of 400 women, one is going to be chosen as queen. And there's other rules and regulations for the queen, and we'll get to those in later chapters. In verse 15, we see, yet again on display, Esther's wisdom. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abigail, and the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised me. And she said, what do I need to succeed? She asked the question, instead of just going and doing, she had the wisdom and countenance to ask someone who knows the way around. Wisdom yet again. What should I bring? What should I do? So when the turn came, Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Wisdom in her she's The Bible describes her that she, yes, she had a beautiful figure and lovely to look at, meaning she is gorgeous, is what that translates to. But it's not just beauty, which is what this whole contest is about, because they don't want Vashti again, who undermines the king. They want someone without brains. Esther has brains. Esther has wisdom. Esther has a little bit of something that all the rest are missing. Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge, and when Esther was taken to the king, Asherus, into his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted remission of taxes to the provinces. You see how he's trying to spin it again. Look, I got a queen. She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. And look, you're going to have no taxes because of she's coming on, and everyone can just ignore my failures, my incompetency. You read 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 18, chapter 1, verses 18, it reads this. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in the New Testament, he's speaking, as you come to know Christ, you're a new creation. The old is past, you're old, you're past. The new has come, you're growing into a new creation. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on our behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So there's the ambassador concept that you and I are called to, that we are to do these things and live this way. And you read in the first passage, in the very first chapter, First Corinthians, as he expounds on this, just a little bit of this foolish side, because as we come into play, when you get into First Corinthians, he writes this letter to describe to the church to encourage them. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, he says this, for the, world of the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us, those who know Christ, who are being saved by its power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning of the Lord. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through the wisdom that pleased God. In, in a sense, the cross is foolish to the world around us to live selflessly, to live for others as Christians were called to. God uses the foolish things 
And then he says, okay, you who are living differently, you're my ambassadors. Likewise, Esther here, it's a foolish pageant. She is isolated. She is alone. And yet what God, what was intended for evil, God uses for good. The foolish banquet, the foolish beauty pageant. And God says, watch how I work. Why does Vashti have to go? Well, so Esther would go into place. But Esther's not in like the best position. She's in a rock and a hard place of navigating. She went to the king. What does that mean? She did what all the other women did as well. She had to compromise there. And I'm not saying that's a good thing either. God uses sometimes the evil things, the, the things that the world intends for evil, God uses for good. She's gaining favor. One commentator writes this, Esther's life is so far has been remarkable. She was the child of a Jewish exile who both died. She was raised by her cousin, a foreign, in a foreign and hostile land. She was taken by compulsion in the king's harem. She found favor with all whom she met. She was finally selected to be the queen of the realm. To this point, the story of Esther also shows us that in the outworking of his plan, God can use the evil of man. God did not make Asherah drunk or make him demand that his queen present himself in an immodest way before the Lord. Yet God allowed the wicked action of man to fulfill a purpose in his greater plan. We find assurance in the truth that no other person, no matter how evil they are, can defeat God's plan for our lives, no matter what they have done or will do to us. You go back to Genesis and you read Joseph. And you get this guy, man, a great character, and he kind of opens his mouth in ways to his brothers that he probably shouldn't, and he needed to learn some of that discernment. And his brothers sell him into slavery, and then he's the master of a household, and then he's thrown into jail because the wife says he raped her, which he didn't. He fled. He did the right thing. There's more to that story. We'll get into that at some point in Genesis. He gets thrown into jail. And then from jail, he gets to the number two in the kingdom of Egypt. And because of that, his brothers come back around again, and he forgives them. He goes, what you intended for evil? Just tell me the slavery to get rid of me. God actually used and orchestrated so that I could be the number two in the kingdom of Egypt, so that you would come into Egypt, you would blossom as a nation. And it's just fascinating to see God's at work. And in the midst of the story of Esther, when we think, She's compromised. She's just going with the flow, and she's listening. That God can God really use her? The answer is yes. Even though she's in a rock and a hard place, she has become queen. Verse nineteen says, "Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate." Tells you something about Mordecai as well. Esther had not made known her kindred or people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fen and Cherish, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asherus or Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book. But nothing given to the king. Nothing given to Mordecai. In the, that world, if you did something that had a favor, you were owed a favor. And the kings would richly reward this type of thing. Important. There's no reward given. It comes about later. But Mordecai's at the gate and he's asking about Esther. He has concern for her. He's consistently going for her. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This is where our part comes in. You can't thwart God. He has his plan. It's divine. You can't undo it. You can't change it. It's his plan. It's going to happen. Divine sovereignty. He has control. He sees all things. But there is a part of you that you and I play. There's a human responsibility. 
And those verses there, Mordecai served the king, so he did have a bit of responsibility to share. Now, did he get the king's back pocket? Yes. But he did his responsibility. Esther finds herself in that same predicament. So the empire is in Mordecai's back. There's this trail. You're starting to see a pattern here of, okay, why does this say, oh, okay, we see how Esther is coming into place. She's the queen. Okay, Mordecai's at the gate. He's important. Okay. He, he thwarted this trap for the king. There's been no reward. Okay, that's probably coming. How's the story going to unfold? And my question to you, really, as we kind of close and wrap up the service this morning, is divine sovereignty and our responsibility. We respond and we have choices to make in life. Chuck Swindoll writes that uh, life is 10% of what happens and 90% of how we respond to life. To the good, the bad, and the ugly, the ups and the downs, we have a choice of how we choose to respond. Do we just give in? Do we just compromise? And if we look at this point, Esther is all in with the compromise, right? Vashti stood up in it, and yet she was thrown out. Esther has listened, so there's a navigating, there's a, there's a wisdom here that's, that's going. And I want to finish with this quote. It's a bit of a longer one, but it starts off here. At this point in the story, Esther is certainly no Daniel. She's both in the world and of the world, fully complying with the emperor's outrageous demands with the goal of winning the love of an unworthy royal, royal husband. She would perhaps have objected that she had little choice, but if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. Vashti, the pagan, had already shown in the previous chapter that the empire cannot ultimately compel our obedience. Esther is certainly not a model for us in her compromise, yet we should not miss the fact that her history of compromise and sin will not disqualify her. So we get on our own side. Our sin disqualifies. God can't use me. And yet, for later obedience and obedience that will bring a blessing for her people, gaining generous tax relief from the government is not what she will be known for. There is hope for all who find themselves in difficult circumstances in the present because of their past sin or compromise. Here is hope for people who married maybe a non-Christian husband or wife, even though they knew it wasn't right. The person who chose a career based on all the wrong motivations or who had wasted a lifetime in pursuit of the wrong goals only to discover that God is sovereign even over those sinful choices and wasted opportunities. Perhaps he has brought us to where we are today so that we can serve him in a unique way. If so, hear me here, that doesn't make those wrong decisions and sinful actions right, but it should cause us to give thanks to God that he is able to form a beautiful picture out of our smudged and stained efforts. Past failures do not write us out a significant part of God's script for the future. There is a plan in place, and Esther has to walk it, and it's magnificent, and it's neat to see, and it's going to require great courage on her end because it can cost her everything. And that's where we find ourselves. We have choices. We're living with choices. We have past regrets and decisions, and we have to choose today, and I always say faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's choosing the next right decision. In the midst of a bad and a rough decision, I'm going to be faithful to God as we say, He won't fail. It's trusting Him in those situations. Say, okay, this decision, I don't like this one, I don't like this one. I'm going to start here. I'm going to start moving forward. And it might require sacrifice. It might require hardship. We don't know. And each of us are at different seasons of life. And we're not guaranteed happiness. That's what the world says. You should be happy. You deserve happiness. And I don't. If we read Scripture, we don't. 
Yet if we trust, God has our best in mind. And so he allows us to go through trials not to hurt us or to harm us, but to trust him, to walk through it with him. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Everything you've gone through, I have been through. I've been beaten. I've been mocked. I've been rejected. Been there. And I'm here with you through it. Will you trust me in this? We ask for your blessing this day for wisdom and countenance that you give us. We ask all in Jesus' name.